Hey everyone, and welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Allison Mendes, and today I'm going to tell you about a couple that would torture and murder at least 12 women between the years of 1973 and 1987. This is the story of Fred and Rosemary West. Now, before we get into this case, I wanted to remind everyone that I am doing a giveaway right now. If you leave this podcast a five-star review, wherever you listen to your podcasts, screenshot it and send it to me on Instagram at True Crime Cases Pod, and you will be entered to win a hundred dollars cash. I will be sending it via PayPal or Venmo, Cash App, whatever app the winner prefers, and I will be contacting you um, via Instagram on July 1st when the giveaway ends. Second, I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that this case is very graphic. Um, I wanted to do like kind of a trigger warning. There is child sexual abuse a lot of it and it's very graphic there is torture there's incest there is um obviously further child abuse and i know this is a true crime podcast but this case is even for me who's been listening to true crime for years and years and years this was a lot so i just wanted to give you guys a heads up before we get into this all right Now, Frederick Walter Stephen West was born on September 29th of 1941 at Brickerton Cottage, Muchmargle, Herefordshire. His father was Walter Stephen West and his mother was Daisy Hannah Hill. Fred's family was poor. They were a family of farm workers and his father was said to have been a very strict disciplinarian while his mother was very over overprotective. By 1951, Fred's mother had given birth to eight more children and only six of them had survived. Um, like the childbirth process. But Fred is said to have been his mother's favorite child, and he is what they called a mommy's boy. The West children were all very close-knit and were all expected to do their assigned chores. The three girls picked hops and strawberries on the farm, and the three boys harvested wheat and hunted rabbits. This instilled in Fred the necessity of working to earn a living, and this would result in a very strong work ethic throughout his life. Fred's classmates referred to him um, as scruffy, dim, lethargic, and they said that he was regularly in trouble. 
Fred was not exactly excelling in his literature studies, but he did excel when it came to things like woodwork and artwork. And in December of 1956, Fred left school at the age of 15 and he became a laborer on the farm that his family already worked on. By 1957, Fred and his brother John frequently um, went to a youth club in a nearby town. He was said to have been very aggressive with women um, and with younger girls, often objectifying them as pretty much just a source of pleasure to be used as he saw fit. And when a woman a woman did accept Fred's advances, she would usually um, find his sexual performance to be unsatisfying, to say the least, because he was pretty much just there for himself, if you know what I mean. Now, for his 17th birthday, Fred bought a motorcycle, and within two months, he had a very serious accident that left him with a fractured skull, a broken arm, and a broken leg. And he would stay in a coma for seven days after this accident and would have to walk with braces for several months afterwards. Due to this incident, or this accident, Fred developed an extreme fear of hospitals from being in there for so long. And it's said that he was prone to extreme fits of rage after this accident. Um, Two years later, Fred fell two stories from a fire escape after he was groping a young woman um, up on the fire escape. And she actually punched him in the face and sent him over the edge, falling down two floors. And here he suffered a further head injury. Now, in June of 1961, Fred's then 13-year-old sister named Kitty went to her mother to tell her that Fred had been raping her for almost eight months and that she was pregnant. Fred was arrested this same month, and he freely admitted to police that he had been molesting young girls since his early teens, and it's said that he even asked, quote, doesn't everybody do it? Um, Fred says he was introduced to sex by his mother when he was only 12 years old and was exposed to bestiality with animals in his early teens. He said his father had been raping his sisters, which is what led him to find incest as normal. Now, it's worth saying that one of Fred's brothers later said that this was all Fred's imagination, but for me when I see what Fred does later in life and what um, he kind of leans towards when it comes to his crimes, this adds up, but it's not completely cooperated. So I'll just say that. Um, nevertheless, Fred was tried on November 9th for the rape of his little sister. And even though Fred's mother was disgusted by his actions, she actually testified on Fred's behalf. And his little sister, Kitty, who was the victim of all of this, refused to testify. And due to this, the case kind of fell apart and Fred was off the hook. Now, Fred was disowned by most of his family at this point, And his mother kicked him out of the family home. He moved in with his aunt, Violet, and at this point was able to reconcile with his parents by mid-1962, although his relationship with the rest of his family would remain strained for most of his life. 
Rosemary Letts was born in Northam, Devon on November 29th of 1953 to parents William Andrew Letts and Daisy Gwendolyn Fuller. She was the fifth of seven children and her family was said to have been poor as well. Uh, Rose's mother suffered from depression and was actually given electroconvulsive therapy while she was pregnant with Rose throughout like the entire pregnancy. And some would later argue that maybe this had caused some prenatal injuries to Rose and had caused some mental issues for her. Um, Rose was said to be moody and precocious as a teenager, often daydreaming at school and performing poorly in her studies. When Rose hit puberty, she um, was said to have been fascinated with her body as it was developing, and she often walked around the house naked or semi-naked in front of her younger brother, Graham. And by the time she was 13 years old, um, it's reported that she would sneak into her little brother Graham's room at night and molest him as well as um, her other brother, which is her youngest brother, whose name was Gordon. Rose's parents separated when she was a teenager and she lived with her mother for about six months before leaving and actually deciding to move in with her father at the age of 16. And her father did suffer from paranoid schizophrenia and he was said to have really extremely violent fits of rage and that he was also sexually abusive to Rose and to her older sister, Patricia. Now, Fred originally met Catherine Bernadette Costello at a dance hall in 1960 and dated her for several months. The relationship only ended when Catherine had to return home to Scotland. But the two would become reacquainted in 1962 when Fred was 21 years old. Catherine was pregnant at the time by an Asian driver, and a lot of people speculate that this is why she had returned to Glasgow after her family had maybe expressed that they weren't exactly pleased with the fact that she was pregnant with a mixed-race child. Now, regardless of her pregnancy, Catherine and Fred got married that November, and they initially moved in with Fred's aunt, but eventually moved to Coatbridge out on their own where Fred was working as an ice cream van driver. Now, Catherine's daughter, Charmaine, was born in March of 1963, and to explain why the child was mixed race, the couple said that Catherine had suffered a miscarriage and that Charmaine was adopted. And just the next year, in July of 1964, Catherine gave birth to Fred's daughter, Anne-Marie. Catherine was often referred to as a struggling mother, and Fred was said to have treated the girls harshly. Um, Harshly doesn't really cover it for me. Fred kept the girls in the bottom bunk of a bunk bed with bars fitted around the perimeter of it, basically making the bunk bed, the bottom half of it, a literal cage, and the girls were only allowed out while Fred was at work. Now, Fred and Catherine's marriage was far from perfect, and Fred admitted 
later to multiple affairs and even fathering a child with one of the women. And when Catherine finds out what her husband has been up to, she starts an affair of her own with a man named um, John. One day, Fred found the two of them hugging and he just walked up to Catherine and punched her in the face right in front of John. And John wasn't that type of guy, so he turned around and he punched Fred in the face, resulting in a fight that broke out between the two, but ultimately John would win. And years later, John was quoted saying, quote, he couldn't tackle a man, but wasn't so slow in attacking women, end quote. Now, this would become a regular routine for the three of them. Um, Fred continued to beat Catherine, and when John saw the bruises, he would head right over and beat Fred. And on one occasion, John witnessed Fred strike Charmaine, who was just a toddler at the time, across the head when she asked for ice cream from his van. And John quickly returned the favor, beating Fred senseless once again. Now, on November 4th of 1965, Fred accidentally ran over and killed a small boy in Glasgow with his um, van. Although he was cleared by police of any wrongdoing, he feared retaliation from the community. um, And since he relied on them to make his living. Um, In December, he moved with his two daughters um, back to Gloucester. Um, And he rented a caravan at the Timberland Caravan Park in Bishop's Cleave. Catherine joined him in February of 1966 in At this point, she was accompanied by two women who had grown close to the family um, back in Glasgow. One was Issa McNeil and the other was Anne McFall. And all of the women moved into the caravan. It was said that both of these women, um, McNeil and McFall, came from poor upbringings and they were hoping to find work in England and create a better life for themselves. By early 1966, Fred had begun to exhibit a lot of dominance and control over these three women, uh, frequently lashing out. He had a lot of violent mood swings, and for the most part, he took it out on Catherine and Issa. He was said to have attacked Charmaine on more than one occasion and that he had actually begun sexually abusing her. After the domestic abuse and the increasingly sadistic sexual demands, even being told by Fred to turn to prostitution to help support the family, Catherine had finally had enough. Now, to escape the nightmare that she was currently living in, Catherine called her previous lover, John, and basically begged him to come rescue her, along with Issa and the children. Now, the three devised a plan for John and Issa's boyfriend, who was, whose name was also John, John Trotter, um, to secretly drive to Bishop's Cleave and rescue Catherine, Issa, and the children and take them back to Scotland. Anne had become infatuated with Fred by this point. That's the other of the two women that had came back with Catherine. And Fred had even promised to marry Anne. 
but when the night of the rescue comes, and this is supposed to be, you know, a big secret plan, Anne and Fred both showed up to the secret location where the Johns were picking up um, the rest of the family. And it's said that in an oddly common manner, Fred and Anne informed the group that the two girls would be staying in England with them and that Anne would be the children's nanny. Now, John steps in objecting to this and he and Fred get in another altercation. John striking Fred multiple times, all while John is clinging to the two little girls and not letting them go. Or no, sorry, Fred was clinging to the two little girls. Um, now, the police ended up being called in the two groups parted ways and the children sadly remained with Fred. I'm not sure why I can understand why maybe Fred would get to stay with Anne Marie, but the fact that Charmaine is not his at all was always really confusing for me. The only thing I can think of is that maybe he adopted her or because they told the story that they adopted her together, um, that maybe that's why, but that part was always very confusing for me. Um, but Catherine frequently traveled to England um, to check on the well-being of her two little girls. While Anne and Catherine had maintained a friendship in the beginning, Catherine soon began resenting the matriarch role that um, Anne was playing in her daughter's lives. And in an act of revenge, Catherine stole some belongings um, from the caravan during a visit and returned to Scotland only to be arrested and sent back to England to stand trial for the theft. Now, Catherine is found guilty and placed on three years probation. And at this point, she moves back into the caravan with Fred and Anne moves out and into another caravan. And Catherine alternates between living with Fred and returning back to Scotland during her probation. And it's said that Anne was writing letters back to her family in Scotland saying that she believed Fred could offer her a better life. And she tried to persuade Fred frequently to divorce Catherine like he said he would so that he could marry her um, like the two had been planning. Now, in July of 1967, when Anne was just 18 years old and actually eight months pregnant with Fred's child, Anne vanished. Now, in early 1969, a 15-year-old Rosemary met then 27-year-old Fred at a bus station. Initially, she was repulsed by Fred's unkept appearance. Rosemary wrote him off as a tramp. But in the following days, Rosemary became really flattered by the amount of tension that Fred was showing her. And after turning him down on two separate occasions, Fred tries one more time and she gives in and says yes. Now, shortly after their date, the two strike up a relationship and Rose begins visiting Fred and his two children really frequently at the caravan. Um, Rose quickly took on the caretaking role with the two girls and initially she treated them with a lot of care and affection. 
and even on multiple occasions took the girls with her and Fred to pick wildflowers. Now, Fred and Catherine had lost contact at this point, so we'll get to that later, but just to clear that up. Within weeks of meeting Fred, Rose quits her job and becomes a full-time nanny to the two girls. Her and Fred had come to an agreement that Fred would give her enough money at the end of each week that she could bring it home to her parents and they would still believe that she was working at her previous job, which was at a bread shop. Now, a few months later, Rose introduced Fred to her parents and they did not approve, obviously. Daisy, uh, her mother, was horrified with Fred's behavior, accurately labeling him a pathological liar, and her father even threatened Fred directly, telling him that he would call social services if Fred continued a relationship with his daughter. After this meeting, um, Rose's parents do what I think most parents would do and forbid her from seeing Fred. Of course, teenagers don't always listen to their parents, and Rose was no different, defying her parents and deciding that she was going to see Fred anyways. This prompted Rose's parents to visit social services, and they reported that their daughter was seeing an older man, and that they had even heard rumors that she was doing sex work out of Fred's caravan. This resulted in Rose being put in a home for troubled youth, where she was only allowed to return home on the weekends to see her parents. Um, Of course, on these weekends, she still snuck out and was seeing Fred instead. Now, on her 16th birthday, Rose left left the home for troubled teenagers and moved back with her parents. At this time, Fred was in jail, serving a 30-day sentence for theft and unpaid fines. When Fred was released from jail, Rose ran away from her parents' home and moved in with Fred, this time at a flat that he was now living in. He was no longer at the caravan. Shortly after the two moved in together, Fred got his two daughters back from social services where they'd been taken when Fred had gone to jail. And at this point, Rose's father makes one last attempt to keep his daughter away from Fred um, and reports it yet again. But when a police surgeon does a physical examination of Rose in February of 1970, they discovered that Rose was pregnant. In response to this, Rose was again placed into supervised care, but not for long at all. She was released on March 6th. Um, on the understanding that she was going to terminate the pregnancy and return to live with her parents. Now, Rose did the exact opposite of this and kept the child and moved back in with, with Fred. And in response to this, her dad basically disowned her and told her that she was never to step foot in his house again. And I'll say right here that there are rumors because of the sexual abuse that Rose endured from her father that this was actually her father's baby. Um, That was never solidified. I think it was more just a rumor, but I did want to include that. Now, just three months later, um, the four, Fred, Rose, and the two little girls, Um, moved out of the flat and they moved into a ground floor flat of a two-story multifamily style home in Midland Road of Gloucester. Um, 
On October 17th of 1970, Rose gave birth to the couple's first child together, and they named her Heather Ann. Less than two months later, Fred is arrested and put in jail for theft yet again, and he would remain there until June 24th of 1971. Now, while Fred served his jail sentence, it left 17-year-old Rose to look after all three of these girls by herself. Now, according to Anne Marie, she and Charmaine were often subjected to criticism, beatings, and other forms of punishment while they lived under Rose's care at the Midland Road home. While Anne was more submissive and would frequently display emotion in response to the abuse from Rose, Charmaine was a different story. Charmaine was said to have infuriated Rose because she often refused to cry or show any emotion in response to Rose's abuse, no matter how severe it became. Despite years of neglect and abuse, Charmaine's spirit was still intact, and Anne-Marie recalls her talking about how her mom would come and save her. Um, Charmaine's childhood friend, Tracy Giles, later recalled an incident where she entered the Midland Road flat unannounced, and when she did, she saw Charmaine naked, standing on a chair, gagged with her hands bound behind her back with a belt, and Rose standing next to her with a large wooden spoon in her hand. Um, Hospital records revealed Charmaine had been treated for a severe puncture wound to her left ankle on one occasion, which Rose had explained was due to a household incident. Um, Unfortunately, Charmaine's abuse would only end when the little girl lost her life. While there was no exact date available for Charmaine's murder, it is widely believed that she was killed shortly before Fred was released from jail at the end of June in 1971. Charmaine was present at a jailhouse visit to Fred on June 15th, and it's believed to have been either later that day or very shortly after that the little girl was murdered. Later testimony from the upstairs neighbor and mother of the childhood friend, Tracy, would only further cooperate this. Um, She recalled that she had brought Tracy to visit Charmaine in June, only to be told by Rose, quote, she's gone to live with her mother and bloody good riddance, end quote. This seemed to be how Rose explained Charmaine's absence to everyone, including the little girl's primary school um, and Anne-Marie herself. When Fred was released from prison, he told the same story. Um, Anne-Marie recalled in her autobiography titled Out of the Shadows that when she had asked her father why her mom didn't take her too when she had come for Charmaine, Fred responded, quote, she wouldn't want you, love. You're the wrong color, end quote. So that's what we're dealing with for him. Um, Charmaine's body was initially stowed in the coal cellar at the Midland Road flat until Fred's release when he buried her naked body in the backyard. Although Fred was adamant that he did not dismember Charmaine, 
autopsy did show that the body had been severed at the hip, although this could have been a result of building work that Fred had done at the property later in 1976. In addition to this, multiple bones um, were missing. This included the kneecap, the finger, wrist, toe, and ankle bones. Um, and police believed that these bones were kept as a sort of trophy. Now, even though Catherine um, had maintained sporadic contact with her children in August of 1971, she inquired as to where her children were since Fred and Rose um, had moved. And at this point, she was provided the new address over at Midland Road. It is believed that Catherine was looking to confront Fred um, to discuss or even demand custody of both of her daughters. And unfortunately, this would be the last time anyone saw Catherine alive. She is believed to have been strangled to death, possibly in the backseat of Fred's car and likely while intoxicated. Um, When Catherine's body was discovered, a short piece of metal tubing was found with her remains which led law enforcement to believe it was likely that she was restrained and subjected to sexual assault prior to her murder. Her body was extensively dismembered and placed in plastic bags and buried. Fred and Rosemary have realized that they are both absolute monsters. They decide that they should get married, and on January 29th of 1972, they tie the knot. They had their ceremony at the Gloucester Register Office. No family or friends were invited, um, except for Fred's brother, John, who was his best man. Several months later, Rose was pregnant with the couple's second child, and the family moved out of their Midland Road flat and into a three-story home nearby at 25 Cromwell Street. Initially, they rented the home, but Fred later purchased it and converted the upper floors into bedsits, which are basically um, room rentals, um, to help supplement income for the family. In order to maintain some privacy for the family, Fred installed a kitchen and bathroom upstairs so none of the guests would need access to the ground floor where the family was living themselves. In addition to this, only Fred and his family were allowed access to the garden area out back. And on June 1st, Rose gave birth to the couple's second daughter, who they named May June. Shortly after giving birth to May June, Rose began working as a sex worker, working out of one of the upstairs bedrooms and advertising her services in a local contact magazine. In addition to her sex work, Rose also engaged in casual sex with both male and female lodgers that stayed in the home, and even individuals that Fred encountered via his work. Rose is said to have gradually increased the level of brutality that she subjected her female partners to, which included partially suffocating them, um, among other things. It became apparent that Rose and Fred, who frequently participated in threesomes with um, Rose, 
took a particular interest in pushing women past their comfortable limits sexually. The couple openly admitted to taking pleasure in any form of sex involving intense dominance, pain, and violence. To satisfy their fetishes, they had a large collection of bondage and restraining devices, magazines, and photographs, which included videos of bestiality and graphic child sex abuse. By 1977, Rose's father had actually come to tolerate Rose and Fred's marriage, and together he and Fred actually opened um, a cafe that they named the Green Lantern, which would shortly after opening be unable to pay its bills um but when rose's father learned that his daughter was doing sex work um instead of being angry about this um he just decided that he was going to be a client of hers as well and he had sex with his own daughter again by 1983 rose had given birth to eight children, at least three of them fathered by clients, um, but Fred would willingly accept all of these children as his own. When each of the West children turned seven years old, they were assigned numerous daily chores in the house, and they were rarely um, allowed to socialize outside of the home. The children were rightfully terrified of their parents with physical abuse coming whenever Rose felt like it, really, uh, regardless if the children had done something wrong or not. Between 1972 and 1992, the West children were admitted to local hospitals 31 times, all injuries being explained away as accidents and never being reported to social services. On one occasion, Stephen was mopping the floor when Rose accidentally stepped into the bowl of water he'd been using, and she responded by hitting him over the head with the bowl and then repeatedly kicking him in the head and chest. Another time, Rose became infuriated over a missing kitchen utensil, so she grabbed a cutting knife and began repeatedly cutting May's chest until her whole rib cage was covered in light knife wounds. Now, even Fred wasn't safe from Rose's violence. One time, Rose was upset about something with Fred and was chasing him around the house with a carving knife. And when he ran into a room and shut the door, Rose ran into the door with the knife. Her fingers slipped down the blade and they were almost completely severed from her hand. Now... In September of 1972, we're going to get into some really graphic child sex abuse right here, guys. So I just want to give you a heads up. Um, But in September of 1972, Fred and Rose led eight-year-old Anne Marie to the cellar where she was ordered to undress. When Anne Marie hesitated, Rose ripped the dress from the little girl's body. She was then stripped naked gagged and bound to a mattress and raped by Fred while Rose watched and encouraged it. After the assault, Rose walked Anne Marie to the bathroom, laughing at the little girl while she struggled to walk and handed her a sanitary towel telling her, 
I'm sorry, everybody does it to every girl. It's a father's job. Don't worry and don't say anything to anybody. Fred and Rose then made it clear to Anne-Marie that these sexual assaults would continue and threatened to beat Anne-Marie severely if they ever found out that she told anybody. Rose also sexually abused Anne-Marie herself and later took extreme gratification in degrading the little girl, often binding her to various items of furniture and reportedly using a vibrator on her before Fred uh, would rape her. She also forced her to do various chores around the house while wearing sexual devices like vibrators that were penetrated into her and um, suggestive outfits. When Anne-Marie turned 13 years old, she was forced to become a sex worker within the home. Fred and Rose told clients that she was 16 years old, as if 16 is an appropriate age um, to force your daughter to become a sex worker. And Rose was always present in the room when Anne-Marie had a client to make sure that she never disclosed her age to any of them. Anne-Marie's uncle, John West, would also become a client of hers, or more appropriately, would also become a rapist. Uh, John would go on to rape Anne-Marie over 300 times. John West later hung himself in his garage the day before his trial was to begin for the rape of his niece. October of 1972, the Wests hired 17-year-old Caroline Owens as their family's nanny. They had picked her up one night when she was hitchhiking home from visiting her boyfriend and learned that Caroline didn't get along with her stepfather and that she had been looking for a job. They offered her a part-time job as their nanny to three of the younger children in the house with the promise of driving her home once a week on Tuesdays. Caroline accepted the job offer and moved into the home several days later, sharing a room with Anne Marie. Rose explained that she was a masseuse when Caroline inquired about all of the men that were visiting the home on a daily basis, and Fred claimed that he was a, quote, skilled abortionist, end quote. According to Caroline, Fred talked about sex nonstop, and this made her really uncomfortable. And when the West made sexual advances towards Caroline herself, she decided that was enough for her. She was extremely uncomfortable in this position, and she told them that she would be moving out and would not would no longer be working for the family. The Wests, knowing that Caroline would be hitchhiking, devised a plan to abduct her. Fred later admitted that the specific intent of the abduction was to rape and likely murder Caroline, but that initially he was just trying to test Rose to see if she would be willing to help him abduct someone. On December 6th of 1972, the couple lured Caroline into their car by apologizing for their behavior and offering to drive her the rest of the way home. Caroline, thinking that maybe she had just misunderstood the previous behavior, accepted the apology and got into the back seat with Rose, who said that she wanted to have a, quote, girls chat while Fred drove. 
Shortly after Caroline got into the car, Rose began to touch her inappropriately, and when she protested, Fred pulled over and punched Caroline in the face, knocking her unconscious. The couple proceeded to gag her with a scarf and bind her with duct tape. When they returned to the home, Caroline was drugged and sexually assaulted for an extended period of time. After realizing the gravity of the situation that she was in, Caroline eventually stopped uh, resisting, hoping to just stay alive. The following morning after the whole attack, um, Fred intimidated Caroline by threatening to allow his friends to assault her and telling her he would kill her while he boasted that he had killed, quote, hundreds of girls. Shortly after this, he and Rose somehow calmly asked Caroline if she would consider returning to work for them. Caroline, who saw a chance here to escape this situation with her life, agreed and resumed chores around the house that day. And later that day, when Caroline and Rose went to, I think, a laundromat, um, Caroline escaped and returned home. Initially, she was too ashamed to tell her mom what had happened, and she remained silent about the attack. But once her mom uh, noticed the welts, bruising, and wounds on Caroline's body, Caroline broke down and told her mother everything. Caroline's mother immediately reported the incident to police, and Fred and Rose were arrested and charged with assault, indecent assaults, actual bodily harm, and rape. The case was set to be tried on January 12th of 1973, but by that time, um, when that day came around, Caroline was so traumatized, she said she could not testify in court. Due to this, the lack of testimony, all charges pertaining to Caroline's sexual abuse were dropped, and the West pled down and pled guilty to indecent assault and uh, causing bodily harm. They were fined 50 euros and were allowed to walk free from court that day. When Caroline heard they were free, she unsuccessfully, thank God, attempted suicide. Just three months after the assault trial, the Wests would go on to commit their first known murder. The victim was 19-year-old Linda Goh, who had met the Wests through um, a man who had been lodging in the couple's home in early 1973. Linda regularly visited the home and was engaged in an affair with two of the men who were lodging there at the time. On April 19th, Linda moved into the Cromwell Street home, and on or about April 20th, other tenants, including Linda's own family when they would later call the Wests looking for their daughter, were told that Linda had been asked to leave the home and move out after she had hit one of the West children. When Linda's body was later found, she was dismembered and her jaw was wrapped in adhesive and surgical tape, which had been used to silence her screams. Two small tubes had been inserted in her nasal cavities so that she could breathe. So when I say her entire jaw was wrapped in surgical tape, I mean literally the entire lower half of her face had been wrapped in tape. 
Long sections of string and knotted fabric were also with her remains when they were discovered. It is believed that Linda's body was suspended from the holes drilled in the wooden beams of the cellar, which Fred later admitted he had devised for the very purpose of suspending his victims' bodies. She likely died of strangulation or suffocation. Her body was missing five cervical vertebrae, the um, kneecap bone, and numerous phalange bones. She was buried in an inspection pit beneath the garage. When law enforcement would later investigate the Wests, they would conclude that all of the victims found in the cellar at 25 Cromwell Street had been murdered and dismembered in the cellar itself. Five victims were murdered and buried in the cellar at Cromwell Street just between November uh, 1973 and April of 1975. The first of these victims was 15-year-old Carol Ann Cooper. She was abducted on November 10th of 1973 after spending the evening at the movie theater with her boyfriend. She had been waiting for a bus when she disappeared, and it is believed that she was forcefully dragged into Fred's car, where her face was then bound with surgical tape and her arms bound with braiding cloth before she was taken back to the West's home. Once at home, she was taken down to the cellar and suspended from the ceiling before being repeatedly abused and assaulted and finally murdered. Carol died from strangulation or asphyxiation before she was dismembered and and buried in a shallow cubicle grave in the cellar. Lucy Partington was abducted from a bus stop on December 27th of 1973 at the age of 21. The precise date of Lucy's death is unknown, but it is believed that she was kept alive and tortured for several days in the cellar and that Fred may have injured himself in the process of dismembering her body because of the fact that Fred went to the hospital for a serious cut on his right hand in the early morning hours of January 3rd, 1974. The knife used to dismember Lucy's body was found buried with her remains in the cellar. Swiss sociology student Therese Sigenthaler was only 21 years old when she was picked up by the Wests while hitchhiking from London to Wales in April of 1974. The details of her murder are unknown, but she was buried under a fake chimney breast Fred had put over her remains to hide them. She had been gagged by a scarf which was tied in a bow. The next victim would be 15-year-old Shirley Hubbard. Shirley was headed home from a date in Worcestershire in November of 1974 when she was abducted at a bus stop. When Shirley's remains were found, her head was completely wrapped in tape with a tube inserted in her nose so that she could breathe throughout her torture. Her body was in an area of the cellar that had been decorated with wallpaper covered in Marilyn Monroe and the names of her movies. 
Shirley was specifically placed under the section of wallpaper that displayed the 1956 film Bus Stop. Juanita Mott, 18 years old, was said to have lodged at the West's home at Cromwell Street and gotten out alive, but in April of 1975, it is believed she was abducted while she was hitchhiking. She would be the last known murder victim for at least three years. After murdering Juanita, Fred concreted over the cellar floor and converted it into a bedroom for his oldest children. In 1977, an 18-year-old woman named Shirley Robinson moved into the West home. Robinson and Fred were intimately involved with one another, and she was heavily pregnant with Fred's child. It was said that Rose, who was also pregnant again at this time, often boasted that Robinson was pregnant with Fred's child, but somewhere along the way, she came to feel threatened by Robinson. This deep resentment Rose had developed is said to have been the motive for Robinson's murder and that Fred likely killed her to remove the threat that she posed to his marriage. Her body was found in the garden behind Cromwell, Cromwell Street and she was extensively dismembered. But there did not be, uh, there didn't appear to be any sort of restraining devices found with her remains. So it is believed that she was it's not likely she was killed for a sexual motive. Her unborn baby was cut from her body and also had several bones missing. Allison Chambers was born in West Germany, but had moved um, as a teenager. At just 16 years old, Allison ran away from a local children's home she'd been living in to become the West's live-in nanny. On August 5th of 1979, after several weeks of living in the home and working as a nanny for the Wests, she was murdered by the couple. Her body was also found in the garden, and she had a leather belt looped beneath her jaw and fastened at the top of her skull to keep her quiet. To alleviate Allison's family's concerns, the Wests continued written correspondence with her family posing as Allison on at least one known occasion. Now, after an ectopic pregnancy and severe beating from Rose, Anne-Marie ran away in 1979. After this, Heather and May would become the main focus for Fred's sexual abuse. And this abuse would only become more frequent when the girls had both reached puberty. uh, Fred was said to have been very overt and unapologetic, telling the girls, quote, I made you, I can do what I like with you, end quote. It is said that Fred openly shared his intentions to impregnate both of his daughters on more than one occasion, and that he would occasionally force all of his children to watch pornography with him. Now, Heather May and their younger brother Stephen were also all close in age, and they were they sort of developed a system of support with one another. And in an attempt to protect each other, um, they created a system 
to kind of look out for one another. And this is something that's common between siblings when living in an abusive household. Um, They would avoid bathing or undressing if Fred was home and wait for him to leave the house. If they had to shower while he was home, one of them would stand guard at the door. And they would also try to not ever leave one another alone with Fred. May would often try to jokingly brush off Fred's sexual advances. Um, Not that anything about them was funny, but this is um, a defense mechanism that victims often display where you kind of try to laugh off in advance in hopes that they'll kind of leave you alone and you won't have to like make them angry in the meantime. Now, in May's autobiography, she later recounted that Heather was affected even more than she was by their father's abuse. And by the the mid-1980s, Heather was showing classic signs of distress. That's very common in victims of child abuse. These uh, signs included biting her nails to the point where they were bleeding. She was drinking alcohol at a really young age. She wouldn't really take her eyes off her father if they were in the same room together. She was constantly watching him. She was extremely nervous around men. She had nightmares all the time. And whenever she was sitting down, she couldn't really sit still. She would bounce back and forth um, the whole time she was sitting. For some reason, this behavior that she had... um, led Fred and Rose to believe that Heather was a lesbian. Um, Heather expressed her desire to run away from home and live a nomadic lifestyle, she said to her siblings, and that she never wanted to see any human beings again, which is just so sad. Um, Heather did tell some friends about the abuse that she was enduring at home. Um, as well as the abuse her siblings were going through. And her psychological distress was noted by several of her peers. Staff at the school Heather and her siblings attended also expressed concern as to why Heather, who was normally very obedient as a student, would refuse to like change her clothes or shower after any like sporting events at school. Um, on one occasion, she was actually forced to take a shower And at that point, both her peers and the staff noted that her arms, legs, and torso were covered in welts and bruises that were all in various stages of healing, some clearly more recent than others, which signifies that the abuse is ongoing. Heather tried to excuse her injuries by saying they were from fighting with her siblings, but she did confide in one friend um, the truth about how she had sustained the bruises. Fairly quickly, um, word spread about Rose's sex life, and before long, the rumors had reached one of her, um, or not about Rose's sex life, about Heather's sex life. Um, Before long, the news had reached one of her friend's parents, who had been friends with Rose and Fred. When Fred learned of the rumors floating around the school, he became very concerned about this, And from then on, he escorted Heather to and from school. After Heather left school in 1986, she applied for numerous jobs in an attempt to escape her nightmares at home. And by June of 1987, she had actually set her sights on a job 
at a at a holiday camp um, in a seaside town. Unfortunately, her application was denied. And that night, after finding out that she wasn't getting the job, her siblings said that they could hear uh, Heather sobbing throughout the entire night. The next morning on June 19th, Heather's siblings all left for school. And when they returned, they were told that Heather had left and had in fact gotten the job that she was wanting. Um, And the parents would later tell her siblings that Heather had eloped with a lesbian lover and that's why she wasn't responding to any of their correspondence. When May and Stephen grew increasingly worried for their sister and suggested that they report her missing to the police, Fred changed the story yet again and told them that Heather had been involved in credit card fraud and that contacting the police would only bring her further trouble. On more than one occasion, Fred and Rose would persuade a stranger to fake a phone call from Heather to them so that they could act like they had heard from their daughter. In the years following Heather's disappearance, Fred would occasionally joke with the children, threatening that they would, quote, end up under the patio like Heather, end quote, if they misbehaved or told someone outside of the family about the abuse that they were suffering at the hands of their parents. With Rose's approval, Fred later constructed a barbecue pit um, opposite of where they had buried Heather's body, and they placed a table directly over her grave where the family would sit during family gatherings in the garden. Heather's uh, disappearance, along with Fred and Rose's ever-changing stories surrounding what had happened to their daughter, ultimately led to police inquiries as to where Heather actually was. And these inquiries ultimately led to a search warrant being issued to excavate the West's garden in February of 1994. Now, in May of 1992, Fred asked his 13-year-old daughter, Louise, to bring some bottles to a room on the first floor of the home. The family lived on the ground floor, so when they say first floor, they're referring to what we would call the second floor in the U.S. They just label their floors differently in the U.K. Um, Shortly after Louise headed upstairs with the bottles her father had requested, her siblings heard her screaming and saying, no, don't. Later, Fred returned downstairs and Louise was found by her siblings, writhing in pain and sobbing uncontrollably. She told her siblings that Fred had sodomized and raped her, and at one point he had even partially started strangling her. When Rose returned home, Louise told her mother what had happened, and Rose responded to her, Oh well, you were asking for it. Over the following weeks, Louise was raped three more times with Rose watching one of the rapes, before following her distressed and bleeding daughter into the bathroom and asking her, well, what did you expect? Fred had also filmed one of these rapes. A few weeks later, Louise found the courage to tell one of her friends um, what had happened, and the friend quickly went to her own mother and told her what she had heard from Louise, and the mom called the police and anonymously reported the incident. On 
August 6th of 1992, the police searched the West home on the pretext of searching for stolen property. Although they found numerous objects of sexual paraphernalia, including 99 pornographic videos, some homemade and some were commercial, they did not find the video depicting the rape of Louise. The 13-year-old made a statement to police describing her father's actions, stating she had been suffering the abuse since she had turned 11 years old and that her mother had been involved in the abuse as well. All of the children were placed in foster care the following day and medical examinations on the children revealed evidence of the extreme physical and sexual abuse they had been subjected to. The children also disclosed to to police that their mother was responsible for most of the physical abuse and that their father frequently told them that if they told anyone what was happening at home, they would be, quote, buried under the patio, end quote, like their sister, Heather. After these revelations from the children, police began a full-scale investigation. This investigation led to Fred being charged with three counts of rape and one count of buggery, which we refer to as sodomy, with Rose listed as his accomplice. Rose was also charged with child cruelty, inciting her husband to engage in sex with their daughter and obstructing the police. The police also questioned the couple about Heather and where she might be. Fred said that Heather was alive and well and that she was supporting herself by being a sex worker, while Rose initially claimed she had no idea where Heather was or why she left home. But on August 11th, her memory magically returned to her, and she told police that Heather had uh, left home because Rose had feared the other children would learn about Heather's sexuality and that she was a lesbian. Rose claimed that she gave Heather 600 euros as an incentive to leave the home, and that she had maintained sporadic contact with her daughter over the years since. Rose was granted bail on the condition that she did not contact any of her children, her stepdaughter, or her husband before the trial, and Fred was held without bail in Birmingham. When Anne-Marie learned that her father had not admitted to any wrongdoing, she contacted the police herself to offer a full statement and detailed her experiences as a child. In a statement given to Constable Hazel Savage, Anne-Marie recounted the extensive physical, mental, and sexual abuse that she had been subjected to throughout her childhood. Anne-Marie also noted that she had been trying to find her birth mother, Catherine, and her half-sisters, Charmaine and Heather, for several years, and that she had been unable to. Further interviews with Anne-Marie's husband, Chris Davis, revealed that Heather had disclosed to him how unhappy she was living at home and that she wanted to leave, and she had disclosed this just shortly before she had disappeared. Chris said that Heather had not discussed her sexual abuse with him, but that he had his own concerns and that he had even offered to confront her parents himself. And when he offered this to Heather, she replied, quote, for Christ's sake, don't because they'll kill both of us, end quote. In an effort to gather further evidence, both police and social workers um, spoke with May, who initially denied that she had been molested. 
May had previously spoken with her sister Louise and Louise had told her that she did not want to see any charges pressed against their father and it's believed that that is why May also denied the abuse. The case against Fred and Rose unfortunately fell apart when Anne-Marie and Louise refused to testify in court. Anne-Marie said that she had feared for her younger siblings and the black, the backlash they might receive at the hands of their parents, um, especially Rose. And that, and Louise said that she had just wanted to return home and keep in mind the kids had been in foster care. This is something that's very common with victims when it comes to testifying about the abuse that they've suffered. In many cases, it can re-traumatize them or a lot of the time, especially when it's their parents, they fear that maybe nothing will happen after they testify and then they're just going to be sent back home to their abusers once again, only now they've betrayed them um, and that the repercussions could be, you know, significant. So the case does fall apart. And although the case against the Wests had been dropped and they had been acquitted of all charges, the West children remained in foster care um, and they had supervised visits with their parents. Shortly after the acquittal, Anne-Marie reached out to D.C. Savage again to emphasize that her mother, Catherine, and her half-sister, Charmaine, were still missing and she could not locate them. When the police started looking into Fred, they realized that there were no traces of Charmaine or Catherine after the year 1971, but that no missing persons reports had been filed for either of them. And at this point in the investigation, DC Savage and the other officers were convinced that Heather was no longer alive and they believed Fred's running joke about her being buried under the patio. On February 23rd of 1994, they applied for and were granted a search warrant that authorized law enforcement to search 25 Cromwell Street to locate Heather's remains. The police executed that search warrant the following day. Now, police presented the search warrant to Rose um, on February 24th and began their search um, and then stopped somewhere in the night. And on the morning of February 25th, 1994, police returned to the Cromwell Street address to continue their search for Heather's body. Now, upon their arrival, Fred informed them that he wanted to be arrested for the murder of Heather and that he wished to be taken to Bearland Police Station to provide a full confession. He was arrested and formally cautioned. At 11.15 the same morning, Fred formally confessed to killing Heather, although he claimed it had been an act of manslaughter. He told police that he had strangled Heather in a fit of rage, then dismembered her body in the bathroom on the ground floor using a heavy serrated knife that he normally used for cutting slabs of frozen meat. He had stored her remains in a dustbin while he waited for an opportunity to dig her a grave. Fred insisted that Rose had no knowledge of the killing and that she had been with a client at the time of the murder. He told police they hadn't found Heather's remains yet because they had been looking in the wrong area of the garden 
and he offered to accompany police back to his home to show them the exact location where her remains could be found. It should be noted that much later in 2004, Barry, one of the West children who was only seven years old at the time of Heather's murder, did come forward and he claimed that he had actually witnessed the murder of his sister firsthand. And he recalled watching his mother, Rose, stomp on Heather's head five times, saying in an interview with the Daily Star that she, quote, didn't move again, end quote, after the stomping had ceased. So I just wanted to include that. The next day, police excavated the area Fred had pointed out to them shortly after 4 p.m. in a different section of the garden that Fred told them they didn't need to look at. They found a human thigh bone protruding out of the garden. Back in the specific location of the garden that Fred had pointed out, police found a mass of jumbled human remains in a bin bag intertwined with two lengths of rope. The dismembered remains were taken to police headquarters for further examination. They were determined to belong to a young woman, and it was noted that one kneecap and several phalanges were missing. The victim's fingernails were discovered in a pile with the remains, which which suggested that the victim had been tortured before her death. Several hours later, the remains were identified through dental records to belong to none other than Heather West. That evening, police formally charged Fred with Heather's murder, and they inquired as to why they had found a third thigh bone in the garden. Fred confessed that there were two other sets of human remains in the garden, and he agreed to once again return to his home with police and point out the specific locations of both graves. He identified one set of remains as Shirley Robinson, who he said was a former resident and a lesbian, and that was heavily pregnant with his child at the time of her murder in 1978. The other set of remains he incorrectly identified as belonging to Shirley's mate, but would not further elaborate as to what her identity was. The investigators discovered both sets of remains on February 28th and charged Fred with both murders two days later. After finding three sets of human remains, investigators made the decision to thoroughly search the entire property. While they conducted this search, they placed Rose in a safe house in the nearby town of Dursley. And when Fred was informed that they would be further searching his home, he authorized his solicitor or lawyer to pass along a handwritten note that he um, had written to the head investigator in charge who was Superintendent John Bennett of the Gloucestershire Police. The note dated March 4th read, quote, I, Frederick West, authorize my solicitor, Howard Ogden, to advise Superintendent Bennett that I wish to admit to a further nine killings 
expressly Charmaine, Catherine, Linda Go, and others to be identified. F. West. End quote. Question further, Fred calmly explained to investigators that there were a further five bodies buried in the cellar and a sixth body beneath the ground floor bathroom. Fred claimed that most of these victims were hitchhikers or girls that he had abducted from bus stops in the 1970s. Initially, Fred claimed that he had killed uh, killed the six girls after they had threatened to reveal his infidelity to Rose, that he had transported them to the Cromwell Street address to abuse, dismember, and bury them in shallow graves. Fred claimed that dismembering the victims made for an easier, easier burial, and then he agreed to return to Cromwell Street again to identify the graves for investigators. Between March 5th and 8th, investigators found an additional six bodies belonging to young females. Each victim had been extensively mutilated, and each body had evidence that pointed to extreme sexual abuse prior to being murdered. Each set of remains was missing, uh, was missing numerous bones, particularly um, phalanges. When Fred was questioned about this, he refused to disclose the location of the missing bones or the reason for why they were missing in the first place. Now, despite the fact that Fred adamantly claimed that Rose had no knowledge of these murders, investigators just weren't buying it. On April 20th of 1944, Rose was arrested on charges from the mid-1970s regarding the rape of an 11-year-old girl and the physical assault of an 8-year-old boy. She was refused bail and transferred to Puckle Church Prison to be held uh, in the maximum security prison wing. In prison, Rose was further questioned about the murders, specifically the murder of her daughter Heather and the murder of Linda Goh. And on April 25th, she was formally charged with the Linda Goh's murder. By May 6th, both Rose and Fred were charged with five counts of murder. Rose reportedly replied, I'm innocent to every charge read to her. And this would prove to be a running theme for Rose uh, throughout her extensive interviews with police, always claiming her innocence, and to this day she sticks by it. In addition to the murders of the victims found at Cromwell Street, Fred confessed to the murders of his first wife, Catherine, and his stepdaughter, Charmaine. He also led investigators to the location of Anne McFall's remains, who was found to be eight months pregnant with Fred's daughter at the time of her death. Now, Anne McFall was the woman way back at the beginning of the story who had been trying to convince Fred to divorce Catherine, and she had suddenly gone missing. Um, although he knew the location of her remains, Fred never admitted to murdering Anne McFall, and the remains of all three women were found between April 10th and June 7th. And I'm going to note here that Fred actually claimed that Anne McFall was murdered by his ex-wife, Catherine, and his brother, John. So that was, I found, I found that really interesting. Um, 
Fred was then transferred to Birmingham's HM prison where he was put on a very strict suicide watch and his cell was to be checked every 15 minutes. On June 30th, 1994, Fred and Rose were brought before a magistrate's court in Gloucester where he was formally charged with 11 murders and she was charged with nine. Both were ordered to be held on remand and immediately immediately following this court appearance, Fred was rearrested on suspicion of murdering Anne McFall, whose body had been discovered on June 7th, but it hadn't been officially identified until that day. And Fred was formally charged with Anne McFall's murder on July 3rd. While being held on on remand, Fred became increasingly depressed, and this only got worse after the couple had appeared in court together on June 30th. Now, this was the first time the couple had seen each other since everything had started, and it's said that Fred made more than one attempt to show his wife some affection. He tried to put his hand on her shoulder, I believe, and she didn't just ignore him, but also winced when he touched her shoulder and appeared to be like repulsed by him. Rose refused to reply to Fred's letters, and there were reports that Rose was really playing into the role of a grieving mother who had lost a daughter and a stepdaughter, both at the hands of her husband, and that she was innocent in both of these crimes and hated Fred because he had taken them from her. Fred pleaded with Stephen and Anne Marie, who were the only West children to visit their father while he was held on remand, and he pleaded with them to go tell Rose that he loved her, um, but Rose never acknowledged any of these attempts. And as a response to Rose's rejection, Fred withdrew his earlier confession that stated that he had acted alone. And instead, he now was accusing Rose of pretty much full responsibility in all of the murders, excluding that of Anne McFall, who, like I said, he claimed was murdered by Catherine and his brother, John. On June 1st, 1955, after his suicide watch had been relaxed, Fred uh, asphyxiated himself in his cell by wrapping a rope he had constructed out of a blanket and some stolen laundry tags um, around his neck, tying this to a door handle and a window catchment and falling to his knees. He did leave a suicide note. Um, I'll post that on my social media, but I'm just not going to read it here. I don't really care to give his dying wishes any sort of platform. Um, So you can find that on social media, but I'm going to leave that out of the episode. Uh, So at pretrial proceedings, Rose pleaded not guilty to uh, 10 charges of murder. They had tacked on Charmaine's murder after Fred's suicide. Her original charges of two counts of rape and indecent assault of young girls had been dropped with a um, chance for later resubmission. And her trial at Winchester Crown Court began on October 3rd. The prosecutor, Brian Levinson, portrayed the Wests as sex-obsessed, sadistic murderers. He pointed to the bodies found at the Cromwell Street home as, quote, secrets more terrible than words can express. The victim's last moments on earth were as objects of the depravity of this woman and her husband, end quote. 
He pointed out that the fact that Fred had been in prison at the time of Charmaine's murder, and he said that the gag on the victim, Therese, had a feminine touch, and this was the um, gag that was the scarf that had been tied in a bow. Prosecution witnesses included Cromwell Street lodgers, the relatives of the victims, uh, Rose's own mother and sister, and surviving victims, including Anne Marie West, Catherine Halliday, which was a former lover of the Wests, Caroline Owens, and um, a girl labeled Miss A, who had been sexually assaulted at the age of 14 by both Fred and Rose back in 1977, and who had described Rose as the more aggressive of the two. The defense attempted to discredit the prosecution's witnesses um, by being motivated by grudges or having financially exploited their connections to the case. Um, Caroline Owens was one of them. She admitted to receiving 20,000 euros for her story, but she also described having extreme survivor's guilt, saying, quote, I only want to get justice for the girls who didn't make it. I feel like it was my fault, end quote. The defense emphasized the fact that Fred had committed at least one murder that was strikingly similar to the rest of the murders before he had ever met Rose. He argued that Rose was not aware of the extent of Fred's sadism and asked that the jury not be prejudiced by Rose's promiscuity and domineering personality. Rose herself decided to testify against the advice of her counsel. And it's said that her demeanor was both morose and tearful, while sometimes being upbeat and humorous. She cried as she described the abuse and rape she had experienced as a child at the hands of her father and said that she had naively married a violent and domineering man. Yet she joked about always being pregnant and laughed when she described one victim who wore, quote, grandfather glasses. She also stated that she had never even met um, most of the victims buried at Cromwell Street, I think six to be exact. And when shown pictures of the victims and asked if she recognized them, her face apparently turned bright red and she stuttered repeatedly as she replied, no, sir, to the prosecution. When Rose was questioned about her life at Cromwell Street, she claimed that she and Fred had lived separate lives, which was the opposite of earlier testimonies provided by witnesses. Rose admitted that her relationship with Heather had been strained, but that Heather was a lesbian who was physically and psychologically abusing her siblings, and she loved Heather despite all of this, and that she had no knowledge of her murder. When she was questioned about the contradictory stories provided by her and Fred as to where Heather had been, Rose claimed that the inconsistencies were due to a telephone conversation she had had with Heather after she'd left home and that it, I don't know, got the stories crossed somewhere. A phone conversation with Heather after she left home was impossible because Heather's body was found in the garden behind the home itself. So she had never left. So I don't see why she's still claiming that she'd spoken with her daughter after this. Anyways... The defense called a number of women who had claimed to have been attacked, attacked by or assaulted by a lone male who matched the description of Fred West between the years of 1966 and 1975. 
These seven women testified that they recognized their attacker as Fred West when they saw his photograph in the media in 1994. The defense's intention with these testimonies was to establish that Fred was capable of abducting, assaulting, or attempting to attack women without Rose, which the prosecution had really never disputed. The physical recollections of a number of these women is noted to have been different from the others. The final witness that testified at Rose's trial was Fred's appointed appropriate adult, which is like um, an assigned guardian or social worker, whose name was Janet Leach. Janet testified on November 7th to dispute the tape recordings of Fred's confession that had been played for the court earlier on November 3rd. In these videos, Fred had stressed that Rose had known nothing about the murders, and Janet testified that through her role as a social worker, Fred had come to view her as a confidant and that he had confided in her that on February 25th, the night before his arrest, he and Rose had made a pact that he would take full responsibility for all of the murders, some of which he had described to Janet as Rose's mistakes. He also told Janet that Charmaine was murdered by Rose while he had been incarcerated and that she had also been the one that had murdered Shirley Robinson. He confided that Rose had participated in the dismemberment and mutilation of Shirley Robinson and that she had personally removed Shirley's unborn child from her womb after death. When referencing the remaining eight victims um, whose murder Rose was being charged with, Janet testified that Fred had referred to Rose as having, quote, played a major part, end quote. When Janet was cross-examined, she did admit to the defense that she had previously lied under oath when prosecution had asked if she had stole, uh, sold her story to a national newspaper for about 100,000 euros. Um, she had said no when, in fact, she had, although she was adamant that she had not lied about anything else. Now, after seven weeks of evidence, the judge instructed the jury that if two people commit a murder, they are both considered equally guilty according to the law, regardless of which one commits the act of murder itself. He also stressed that circumstantial evidence can be sufficient for, for finding someone guilty. On November 21st and 22nd, the jury returned unanimous with guilty on all counts. Referring to her crimes as appalling and depraved, the judge sentenced Rosemary West to life in prison, emphasizing that she should never be paroled. Rose is currently serving her life sentence in HM Prison Newhall, where she protests her innocence to this day. Fred and Rose West are known to have committed at least 12 murders between 1967 and 1987. Many of the investigators who worked on this case believe that there are several other victims whose bodies have just never been found. Before his suicide, police had recorded over 108 hours of taped interviews with Fred, and on several occasions he had made cryptic hints that had that he had several other victims, but he always refused to divulge further information. 
Fred had admitted that there were up to 20 additional victims that he and Rose had killed to Janet Leach, but that they were spread out and not all buried in one place, and that he had intended to reveal the location of one body per year to law enforcement. Fred did admit to the murder of 15-year-old Mary Bassholm, who was a waitress at a cafe that um, Fred frequently went to. Fred abducted Mary at a bus stop on Bristol Road. Her remains have never been found, uh, have never been found, but Fred did admit to police that he had killed her, and it is believed that she was buried in Bishop's Cleave. Now, this year in May of 2021, forensic archaeologists began searching the basement of the cafe where Mary had worked at the time of her disappearance, thinking that maybe she had been buried there. Unfortunately, that search didn't turn anything up, and they still have yet to find Mary's remains, and her family is still searching for closure for their daughter. The surviving West children were given new names and sent into foster care, the younger ones were. The three older children, Stephen, Anne-Marie, and May, contacted the younger ones in hopes of giving them a fresh start. The older three received counseling and went on to talk to the media um, about the horrific abuse that they had suffered. Anne-Marie went on to write a book titled Out of the Shadows. In November of 1999, according to The Guardian, unfortunately, Anne-Marie jumped out of the um, Gloucester Bridge, uh, Westgate Bridge and fell below into the River Severn. And she was swept a half mile downstream before being pulled from the ice cold water and just barely alive. Sadly, this wasn't the first time Anne Marie had tried to take her own life. Well, just two weeks before, in an interview, she had said, quote, People say I am lucky to have survived, but I wish I had died. I can still taste the fear still feel the pain. It's like going back to being a child again. 